Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at Dallas Theological Seminary and the Hendricks Center. And my guest is Jeremy Kimball, who is Associate Professor of Theological Studies at Cedarville and author of the book, 40 Questions About Membership and Church Discipline. So we're going to be talking about the church and ecclesiology. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Thanks. Pleasure to be here, Daryl. Yeah. And uh, – and, and so let's let's just get started simply. Uh, tell us a little bit about your theological background and how you managed to end up writing on on the topic of church membership uh, and church discipline. Yeah, well, I served as a pastor for about eight years in a few different contexts, and uh, was able to, after college, be involved in a variety of settings where I saw pastoral ministry being done day by day. And uh, when I went to do PhD studies, I knew I wanted to do something in the area of ecclesiology, doctrine of the church, but I, I didn't know what, honestly. So I was at Southern Seminary at the time, and I had a, I had a lunch with uh, Greg Allison, professor there, and uh, he was kind of firing away with ideas for dissertation work, and uh, we're kind of talking through a variety of topics, and he finally said, well, what about church discipline? And I thought, well, that's kind of a kind of a morbid topic to, <laughs> to think about and study. But the more we talked about it, the more intrigued I became, and especially because of pastoral days and seeing that process being done both well and poorly, I thought it'd be interesting to do some some theological study in terms of the the undergirding theology uh, behind discipline and why it's done. So that led to PhD work that then culminated. Uh, some years later, in this book on both membership and discipline, so coming from kind of the fruits of that labor. So, uh, were your pastorates in the Ohio area, or were they in different parts of the country? Yeah, I was a youth pastor right away uh, out of college in uh, Northeast Ohio. I then pastored uh, a lead pastor at a church plant in Wisconsin, and then after some time there, a uh, great church, came back to Akron, Ohio, and was an associate pastor there as well. So there was education and, and ministry intermingled uh, throughout my journey there. But yeah, those three contexts were about eight years of my life. Okay. And then your your training is was at Southern Seminary and then at Southeastern? Yes, yeah, Southeastern was PhD work under uh, John Hammett in ecclesiology. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've not only um, have some church experience, but you've kind of seen different parts of the country as well. Yes, and and I tell you, I'm from New York originally. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, when I married my wife from Indiana, we we always joked there was a culture clash of the Midwest and the Northeast. Uh-huh. Um, we're still working through some of those things. No, it's it's very good, but it's interesting to see even from the Northeast to the Midwest, the, the kind of church culture of the Midwest compared to the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And then going to Wisconsin and again, going to a more unchurched, uh, more private in terms of individuals kind of demeanor uh, in terms of how you do church as well. So there different contexts absolutely shaped the way we approach things. Yeah. Uh, and I think sometimes in ministry, you know, although we have one context, if we've come from a different context with a different experience, that actually is an adjustment. And it's part of what you have to to uh, take into consideration about how you go about doing certain things. It absolutely is. I 
Yeah, Wisconsin is probably the biggest culture shock for us uh, in that, for one thing, it's it's winter for so long. Um, and part of the culture there is just everyone skis, snowmobiles, everyone's ice fishing, doing all these things. And you realize if you want to be part of that culture and, and minister to those people, you're going to have to join in on the life that they've lived for a lot of years already. Hmm. Well, um, I won't talk about the challenge of what would happen if you ever come to Texas. We'll save that for another time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but it is a, it is it is actually an interesting feature of ministry that I think some people don't don't uh, initially come to grips with, and is and can be part of the equation in terms of sometimes doing or saying or responding to the things in ways which work in one culture but may not work in another. It's true, and, and even. The preaching ministry, the way people respond to what's being said, uh, you, you may like be hitting a home run, but you look at the audience and there's more of a stoic demeanor and you think, oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not connecting. Or as well with this topic, you think about membership or discipline. If it hasn't been a part of the culture of the church, they may think, well, why, why would we kind of welcome that in? Why would we do things that way as opposed to this kind of a way? So there are a number of challenges for sure. Interesting. Well, let, let's let's turn our attention to the to the topics that we said we'd discuss, and I think it's probably appropriate to discuss membership before we discuss discipline. Does that make sure. sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, um, so let's talk a little bit about church membership. You said. Um, what do you do in a context where people are not used to church membership? So, so let's think back um, to what actually generates a question like that. What are the possibilities that uh, someone faces? And I take it that part of what you must be talking about is how do you establish the nature of the way church membership works and should work in a church, perhaps even in a context in which people are just used to attending and that's the end of it? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not sure about your context, Daryl, but uh, I teach at a, a university, and so I get college students asking all the time in my theology classes, like, is church membership really that important? Where, where is it in the Bible? I don't see a verse about that. And so we talk about this all the time. And, and I think what I often go back to, if I'm trying to think back with um, people at a church context and say, well, why is this an important thing? I try to go back to the, the big picture of the Bible with the covenantal structure especially. Mm -hmm. so thinking through the way in which God has made covenants with his people and thinking through how does the, for example, Mosaic covenant differ from a new covenant context mm -hmm. thinking through the people of God. So I want to go back to that and say if we think about the Mosaic covenant in Israel, which is a, a big topic obviously. Right. But take them there and to say, if, if this is um, a mixed people, meaning there are both regenerate and unregenerate people in that community, mm -hmm. is that the nature of the new covenant as well? We go to Jeremiah 31, we discuss, and I want to show them, well, theologically, it seems here they will all of them know the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest. So mm -hmm. it seems to be a shift covenantally from a mixed community to a regenerate community, and so then we want to say, okay, how do we then decide and decipher and discern who's a part of this community of the church? Well, it's people that are regenerate. We can formalize that in various kinds of ways, but a way to say this is to say, um, okay, we, we recognize saved, regenerate people are part of this community. So that, that's one theological level, and then it gets more practical beyond that, but I'll, maybe I'll pause 
just see if you want to follow up with it. Yeah, I, I, still, I, act, I actually do because um, uh, oh, because churches are made up. Well, we're, we need to distinguish then between the people who attend a church and the people who are making a decision to to consciously associate themselves yep. with that particular community. Yep. It is, it's a voluntary association. I like to try to say, Jonathan Lehman talks about this a lot, a mm-hmm. voluntary commitment, a covenant, if you will, to oversee and be overseen mm-hmm. in your discipleship. Okay. So with that in mind, now I'm thinking through an attendee is coming. They're, they're singing songs. They're receiving from the preaching of the word. Maybe they're giving. Uh, you know, to the church as well. Membership is trying to say, okay, the next step we're trying to say is that you're going to covenant with this community of people so that you can oversee others in their discipleship and your community be overseen in your discipleship with that particular people, such that I'm accountable. I recognize that I'm going to be encouraged, prayed for, all these one another commands done in that context. Okay. So it's a conscious uh, uh, stepping in. And um, do you set? I mean, I could see very wide, uh, simple ways to do it. Some people might say, "Well, you just say I want to join, and that's the end of it." Um, and, and then I know other people who have like new member classes and that kind of thing to orient people to the kind of the community that they're going to have. So, so where are you on that spectrum? It's a good question. I, I think it is to some degree contextual. I, I think that if you're in Iran. For example, church membership may look different than Dallas, Texas. But the key component, I think, is how can we, um, if that covenant structure is true, how can we ensure as we bring someone into membership, or the process is, this person, as far as we're able to tell, we're, we're not God, but as far as we can tell via a testimony of faith, fruit, those kinds of things, this is a regenerate person. Mm-hmm. Now, that could look different. If someone's in a persecuted context, well, man, they could come – just by their coming to your service and coming to fellowship with those people, they are risking their lives. By being baptized, they put a target on their back to say, I, I'm with this people and not with that people. I don't need them to sign a document per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to great lengths to demonstrate their commitment to Jesus, whereas uh, in the States it could be helpful – when there's been perhaps church hopping mm-hmm. that's occurred over time to say, well, let's solidify that commitment in, in some more formal kind of way. Okay. So um, I'm just walking down the path here of, uh, of this because part of the assumption of church discipline is a mutual understanding about the oversight. Is that, yes. is that, is that fair to say? I totally agree. Yes. You, you don't, so you're not going to discipline. You're not going to even think about disciplining someone who hasn't stepped forward and said, "I want to be a part of this community." Absolutely. Yes. That's right. Okay. So let's go back to the question you posed earlier, which was: a student walks up to you in class and says, "You know, why is church membership important?" Because uh, I think you've kind of laid the groundwork now, or at least the beginning groundwork for answering that yeah. question. Let's fill it out. What? It, so. Uh, so why is church membership important? <laughs> <laughs> Every semester, I get this. Okay. Uh, yes, I, I think there's a few things. Number one, we, we mentioned before, uh, the one another commandments. So that there's lots of these in the New Testament. So pray for one another, encourage one another, be devoted to one another, bear with one another. All these things, Romans 12, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4 and 5. 
who do you do that with? I, I don't. I don't do that with a, a Christian in Japan mm-hmm. or in, in California. I don't even do it with a Christian in, in Dayton, though it's nearby my my hometown here. Mm-hmm. I do it with my particular local church that I'm part of. I do those one of the commands with those people in that place. I think also when you read verses like Hebrews thirteen seventeen, uh, where it says, "Obey your leaders." And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let us joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Those leaders just really practically have to know, well, who's that? <laughs> who am I overseeing? Who, yeah. who am I accountable for to God to say, okay, those people, that's who you're accountable for. So so part of what you're saying is when people say, well, the Bible, you know, I don't, I don't see a membership card on any of the pages of the Bible or a picture right. of a membership card. Um, uh, uh, I don't even see a visitor's card for that matter. Um, you know, um, what you're saying is, is that there are assumptions about, about the nature of community and the, and the acknowledgement that I'm part of a community in the language that tells you something's going on here. Something intentional is going on here. Yeah. We, we call it an inference mm-hmm. from, from what we can deduce from the data that's there. Uh, but yes, I would say Acts especially seems to indicate uh, there's this kind of assumption of joining in that kind of manner. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so you've recommend you don't have any you have a specific recommendation about what membership is for and how you prepare for it, but it sounds like you're much more open about about how a particular community actually does their membership. Yeah, I think that there's wisdom. We call it a wisdom issue mm-hmm. in terms of a new member's class. So, for example, I'll just share my, my church's context here. I've served as an elder at my church here in Cedarville. And we our, our process is that we uh, get uh, someone who goes to a pastor at our church and says, hey, I want to join as a member. Uh, they would do actually an application, very short, but an application of a testimony of faith, um, where they would serve in ministry. They, they foresee that service aspect as well. Uh, some other questions beyond that. They would then interview with a couple of the elders. They just ask them questions about what is the gospel, share your testimony of faith, and how you'd like to serve. Those main kinds of questions, maybe some others. And uh, and then we, we're congregational in nature in terms of our, our polity. We, we say the church votes on certain things. So um, we have videos of church members joining, giving their testimony in that way, and the church hears those. And and uh, affirms those when they when they recognize good uh, affirmation of the gospel in those those videos. That doesn't have to be the way it is wholesale. Uh, there could be an extended class you offer. There could be I'm coming down an aisle to talk to a pastor to want to join. There's a brief interview there, uh, ascertaining of uh, a good testimony of faith and to say, hey, church, this person wants to join the church. So there is a variety of ways that could be done. Okay. Now, um, I imagine you also talked about uh, the the privileges, benefits, and responsibilities of membership to some degree. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, so let's sort our way through those. Um, 
uh, let's talk about privileges and benefits, and and then we'll talk about responsibilities. Uh, secondly, so so what does a person gain by being a member? Obviously, they get a community with which they identify, but and, and a group of people with whom I say I'm going I'm going to you know uh, journey in my walk with Christ with these people. Um, what what else do you think they gain by membership? Well, I, I would just reiterate that, Daryl, too, because I think, and I'd be curious for your thoughts on this, too, I think community is such an important facet of of life that people were so connected via technology, and even you and I right now are connected. Right. This kind of it's a wonderful thing, but real, genuine community where I am really known and really loved. Doing life together. Yes. Yeah. I, I think I think we just miss the beauty of being known in that kind of way. So, for example, today I was sharing in a theology class at our school here about ways in which we can overcome sin and temptation. Here, here's, a, here's a benefit, I think. Ways of overcoming sin and temptation. And the students had lots of ideas. I had ideas as well. And the last slide I show in my PowerPoint for this this lecture that I give is it's a picture and it's a picture of my wife and myself and four other couples all in my church, all in my Sunday school class who I have a deep connection to. And uh, even today, like when I was speaking about one facet of our relationship, I choked up, tears came to my eyes. My students see a genuine love that I have for them. They have for me. And I want to tell them like, you must have that level of community. Hebrews three, uh, talks about right, exhorting one another day after day as long as it's called today so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And we we desperately need that. And so I think just, just to reiterate your point there to say that is so crucial as a benefit. So um, so, the, and there's, so there's support and there's, there's presence, there's um, doing life together. Uh, there, uh, there at least is the opportunity or potential to consciously minister together in a group as opposed yes. as an individual. So that would seem to me to be a, a benefit. Um, uh, if you um, have to go through a difficult time or an illness or something like that, you've got support there. That you're, yep. you're, you should never be alone in a church. Yes, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard it too. How many times have I heard in my life, man, if it wasn't for the church, I don't think think I could have gotten through this time in my life. Mm-hmm. I've heard that so many times spoken, and the, the hospitality, the ministry, the moments of deep grief and sorrow where the church is there, it's it's massive. And to your point as well, there, there's ministry synergy, we could say, right? right? We could do a lot alone, but together we can accomplish more, more rapidly. Fair enough. So let's let's transition a little bit here and talk about uh, the responsibility. So that's uh, kind of what I receive. And one of the difficulties I think of church membership, in fact, church attendance today, is is that people tend to view the church like a consumer. So they, you know, what is it doing for me? And they think about what they get from the church. But obviously, the other half of church membership that's important from a Christian point of view is what you give to the church, yes. and 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 the way you view that relationship. So how do you how do you talk about those kinds of things? Yeah, great question. And I, I want to point right away 
to texts like 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and 1 Peter 4. Those are three that discuss spiritual gifts. All right, so 1 Peter 4, more briefly than the other two, but says uh, we're, we're good stewards of God's varied grace if we use the gifts that God has given to us in a local church context. All right, so we, as we do that, we are good stewards of God's varied grace. So a call there to live and to serve in uh, a certain kind of a way, whether it's speaking, whether it's serving. And so doing that for one another and, and 1 Corinthians 12 also gets into the fact that there's this body imagery, right? There's the idea of you're a foot, your hand, you're not, all that. So when, when this is missing from the church, if I'm missing a body part, I notice. If tomorrow morning I wake up, my, my right hand is gone, I will notice. Mm-hmm. And the same way, there are things in the church you will do that only you can do, that God's made you to do. And so the idea of uh, you know, and what you're alluding to in the First Corinthians passage and in the Romans passage is the mention of gifts that we've been equipped, and those that that equipment, if I can say it this way, it sounds almost cold, but that equipment is designed for service to give to the church, to participate in the church, to be active. So that again, I'm not just going to church to receive, I'm going to the church to contribute and to, and to contribute to the edification of others. Yes. I think we, I think you're right, Daryl, to say that a, a consumer mentality is ever present with us in this day and age. And we need to think through not just what I get, but what I give uh, in terms of this church and the way in which I can um, minister and not expect maybe what, what Hollywood or Broadway can give us, but to say, this is a simple people who are gathered for a specific purpose, and I'm, I'm leveraging that and leaning into that as best I can. Yep. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. And, I, you know, I, I, I say another thing I like to say is that our culture trains us to be people who are entitled, which, in, which, which creates a passivity in our engagement uh, and, and, our, and, and so we assess everything through the entitlement thing that feeds the consumer um, mentality that we have. If I sign on to be a member and, as you say, to oversee and be overseen, then I am signing up to be accountable for the testimony that I have on behalf of my Lord and the community to which I am connected. It's true. It's true. Yeah. I think that there's a connection here to be made between membership, the perseverance of our faith, 
And uh, the reality that those are connected then means also, uh, just by segue, thinking through if that doesn't occur, if, there, if there's a deviation all of a sudden from that, that discipleship to Jesus that's noticed, then the church says, okay, well, what do we have to do about this? There's a definite connection there. Okay, so um, so there's and, – and the hard part of this, it, or a hard part of this, to say it that way, is not just the accountability that it creates, but the accountability it creates in a culture and in a context and in a legal environment in mm-hmm. which um, what the church expects is not necessarily what the culture at large expects. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tensions that those generate, particularly with the individualism that we often have and the idea of freedom and sometimes even the idea of adult freedom and all those kinds of things. So so we've got a lot of things getting in the way here, if I can say it that way, in sure. terms of yeah. how we view things, which means that churches um, are left with the challenge of how they uh, negotiate that reality um, when – at a legal level, the church may be doing things that, if it's challenged strictly in an American legal context, might get the church into trouble. Mm. So yeah. I, I, I hate to start here, but in some senses, um, this at least at the reality of, of elders trying to oversee this process, um, that's a reality you have to cope with at the elder board level. It is, and we, we have, and uh, I think it's it's helpful. I know, I know at our church, um, our elders and pastoral staff um, know, and we have some good lawyers in our church that are able to give us some, some guidance in that regard as well, to know what kinds of documentation do we need as we walk through all those things. It also does give rise to how you conceive of membership in this day and age to say perhaps part of the motivation for signing off certain documents is to say, here's our statement of faith, here's our church covenant, and uh, recognizing that I am placing myself under this such that if I were to deviate from this, uh, there could be a dismissal from the church if not repented of. So that has to be clarified. It is on our end. We know that that's a, a complication. And communication is paramount. Definitely. So uh, again, we're segueing from membership to discipline. So, so how do you do this? Do you do this at the as people are joining? Uh, you know, one of the justifications for a new members class in some contexts is to have this this aspect of church membership and mutual accountability be as clear as possible by the time you're all done, so that yeah. so that a person understands. Uh, you know, membership has its privileges and its responsibilities, and one of those responsibilities is is that I'm giving myself over to the oversight of a community, into into whose hands I am I am entrusting myself, and that includes um, that includes uh, discipline within the family. Yeah, I, I do think that whether it's a class or whether it's for us at our church, it's during our elder interview of that candidate for membership. But somewhere, you're right, Daryl. Somewhere along the way, that has to be very clearly communicated in terms of um, what you are signing up for. In in a, in a phrase, there, uh, when do you come into this church as a member? What are you really coming into? And to be fully aware of all the realities that come with this church. So, uh, you know, we've talked about this happening through a class or through an interview or whatever. L- let's talk about the other scenario, which is it doesn't happen. 
and you try and you try and exercise church discipline, uh, what might you be facing? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like that scenario. It makes, makes me scared just hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. So I, I do know if you went to, for example, Nine Marks Ministries is one ministry. If you go to ninemarksthings.org, and type in their search bar uh, some legal ramifications of all this. They have great documents there to look at. I would encourage a pastor or elder board as fast as I could. If this has not been done in your church, this needs to be done today. Because if you're committed to membership and discipline, and you want to do those things biblically and correctly, and you get into that process, you have to be able to account for not just church realities, but world realities. That's right. Legal reality, and in some cases, legal realities. It, it's true. It's a legality mm-hmm. issue. So you got to think through again the forms and the documents. This is a constant. It's not a one-time thing either. Mm-hmm. This is an ongoingly uh, assessed process to ensure are we still within the guidelines of doing what we're doing in this regard. It's a it's a process you're always going through. So. Now, and, I, and I make the point because a lot of people, you know, there there are a lot of communities that are very loosely structured, and uh, and and by not having something like this in place, you might uh, be automatically signing yourself into a situation where you don't exercise church discipline. Yep. And because because of the risks that you realize are involved, and the complications of doing it, so um, so. So that produces a certain kind of community, or risks producing a certain kind of community. So I take it that one of the reasons you wrote this book was because, and you did your work in church discipline, is because you regard church discipline as an um, important, and I'm going to be technically ecclesiological responsibility, or important responsibility of the church. Yes, absolutely. Whereas church membership, I, I, I advocated before for it with some principles and some other texts, discipline is overtly textual, right? So you can go to Matthew 18, 15 to 20. You can go to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13, Romans 16, 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, some others as well, where this issue is hit on. And so I saw that even, even with some trajectories in the Old Testament to see some patterns of God and his character and how this works, it's biblical, it is there. And uh, to do it responsibly, to do it lovingly, mm-hmm. which which sounds – We'll like talk oxy- about that. That's actually something I want to focus on. Yeah, because it sounds like an oxymoron, right? To yeah. say, like, we're going to do this act. Yeah. Our culture is going to say that act in and of itself is unloving. Yeah, and it and it's inherently punitive. And so um, – uh, and, and it's more complicated than that. So – Yes. Um, so okay, so let's go there. Um, so we've said that church discipline is important. Let me make one other point before we transition out, which is, you reason you engage in church discipline is to make a statement about your community's character and the whole and the holiness that everyone is striving for in the community. Yes, it's to man awaken the the sinner to their need for repentance, and Corinthians says to keep the the community of faith pure. To not sin uh, spread as it could. Now, obviously, one of the dangers of a community that is accountable like this and that holds itself accountable is it can become a pretty uh, 
a grim con- congregation. Everyone's keeping an eye on everyone to make sure that they're dotting all their I's and crossing all their T's. Yeah. And 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 there there's the danger of almost a kind of legalism setting in in the atmosphere and and almost an impressive oppressive kind of environment. Um, what it and, and we're almost shifting here to the to the nature of discipline and thinking about why we do it to the psychology of what's involved in it and how you go about it, which I think is is as important a question to think through. I mean, once you make a commitment to do church discipline, and I've sat on elder boards where we've exercised discipline and we've made those decisions, and we and we've in many in most cases we take a significant amount of time to make yes. that decision uh, rather than simply reacting immediately. Uh, because part of what we want to set up is assuming that the discipline achieves its its goal of restoration, which is one of the points at some point, um, you are in a position to know what that looks like on the other end. Yep. Yeah. So a couple of questions there I hear, but, but just one, kind of the psychological side of things in terms of that could really produce a grim kind of a church. I think that needs to get us back to our doctrine of sin mm-hmm. and thinking through what sin actually is. If we conceive of sin, like Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13 talk about it, where, where it says there, Be appalled, O heavens, my people have committed two evils. They've uh, forsaken this fountain of living water, and they've hewn out for themselves broken wells or cisterns that can hold no water. Mm-hmm. So the great evil, the great atrocity of sin is we reject what is life-giving and pure and good for what is going to produce death and destruction. If we can get back to that doctrine of sin, we can then start saying something like discipline is done for progress and joy in the faith. It's not meant to produce a, a kind of like a you said a grim, oh, austere kind of a environment is meant to produce joy. It's sort of like, and it's a bad line, but it's sort of like your parent when they disciplined you back when you were a kid. And they say, I'm doing this because I, I love you, mm-hmm. which you always feel as a kid like, oh, that's not true. But it's loving in actuality. And, and the long game is that we want joy in Jesus. And it's restorative. And, and, I mean, it's designed It's divi- designed to get things kind of back in kilter. Yes, yes, meant to realign what we've misaligned, yes. right? To bring joy and hol- holism to the church in that way. So that vision needs to be cast more often, I think, as well. Yeah, the, re- the reason I mention that there's a passage that's always struck me um, pretty deeply. It's in, it's in Matthew 18. Uh, there are a series of texts in which it's clear we're going to hold people accountable for how they walk. But the last part of that chapter is about the yes. importance of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so um, so what you get is a feel that says, yes, we're going to hold each other accountable, but we're also going to be um, – we're going to be, if I can say it this way, quick to be gracious, which I mean – which I, by which I mean – uh, not not paying attention that it didn't happen, not saying that, but quick to be uh, to be restorative to the person uh, who responds to um, to the discipline that is being set forth. Yeah, such an important point, so important. I, I love pointing that out because as soon as Jesus is done saying that, Peter immediately says, "Well, how many times?" Exactly Should right. Yeah. Right. Seven, no, no, no. Seventy times seven goes that whole parable. Right. And meant to say you could easily flip the tables. This unrepentant sinner 
has, has sinned in, in an egregious way, ongoing way, and they've you know worked through this process. We could just as easily sin by not allowing this person to repent and return and forgive them. That that is just as egregious in the the eyes of God as was the initial sin. That's a huge. I, I like to have fun with that seventy times seven passage because I say, you know, take out a yellow sheet of paper and number from one to four hundred and ninety, and when you hit four ninety one, then you don't have to get to forgive anymore. You know, who does yeah. that? Nobody. Uh, or, or, or another way to think about it is, in the context of Jewish tradition, three, you know, three strikes and then you were out. So, so you were to forgive three times, but on the fourth time, the obligation no longer existed. And in the parallel passage to that text, it says seven times in the day. Yeah. You know, so yes. So I'm yeah. so I'm going. Okay. So that six o'clock in the morning, please forgive me. Ten o'clock in the morning, please forgive me. One o'clock in the afternoon, please forgive me. Four o'clock in the afternoon, please forgive me. Six o'clock in the evening, please forgive me. Nine o'clock in the evening, please forgive me. Eleven fifty nine at the end of the day, please forgive me. You know, and you're sitting here yeah. going, you mean yes? You're you're to be you're to be quick to seek. The restoration with the response. Yes, and and we can't know. Well, maybe maybe you know, Daryl. I don't know. You could let us <laughs> let us know this is the case. But in Second Corinthians two, there's somebody, and commentators kind of right. Wax Who is it? Yeah, was that the guy in First Corinthians five? Was it not? The point is, there's somebody that church is not forgiving. Yeah, there's somebody they're not reconciling with. Where where Paul said, no, 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 you reconcile. They've repented. Make this right. That's the. It's restorative. It's not merely punitive, as you said before. And uh, the aim is for rest- restoration and forgiveness. Okay, so let's talk about this. this is the, the practical set of questions now that deal with you know being on an elder board where you have a situation, and I don't know how you all did it when we when we did it when we became aware of something that we felt like um, rose to that kind of level. Um, you know, we would dis- we would discuss it, and um, I mean, I've been in elder meetings. I mean, I remember very early on when I was an elder, uh, being in an elder meeting in which detective information was being circulated among among the board members because a spouse wanted to prove that the other spouse had been unfaithful, mm-hmm. and hired a detective to do it, and sent the results to us and asked, "What are you going to do?" Um, and you know, and wow. I mean, I, I, in fact, I remember commenting in the meeting that when I was training in seminary to do church work, this was the last scenario that was in my mind when I agreed to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and, and yet, boom, there you are. So, yeah. so let's let's talk a little bit about about. Um, Kind of the elders' role, and I'm assuming an elder-ruled church here of one kind or another. So, um, um, but uh, let's talk about the the oversight aspect of this and how it actually works itself out. Uh, what right. what did you have to say about that dimension of this? Yeah, and uh, I come from an elder-led congregational kind of a, a structure as well. Similar but differences there as well. But you know, Matthew 18. We're going to uh, agree and see this as uh, there's a one-on-one kind of reality that's done there to say you approach a brother or sister that's committed an offense, and it goes on to some witnesses if they refuse that, and you want them to receive it and be able to repent of that. 
But in our context, it's gone through a couple of those iterations of someone's approached them, they've kind of stiff-armed it. Next group, maybe some of the elders went with that person to be eyewitnesses and talk to them as well. Then uh, we sit, we had, you know, when I was dealing with a discipline issue uh, last year even, there were 14 of us on the board and uh, just trying to work through and, and sift through the, the details that are there. And like you said as well, Daryl, it was, it was slow work. We heard from somebody say, okay, you went to them, what was said, how did that work, and what was their response? And we almost all of us talked to this individual just in, in life. We'd see that person say, hey, how's this going for you? I heard this, and they, they knew about that, and we would have conversations. There, there were lots of people. A few elders, though, were more concentrated, I guess, in their efforts to get at that. And eventually, after several confrontations, would bring it and say, this is what we're seeing. There's resistance. There's not really a movement toward repentance in this way. So now we got to move toward this step, and that would move toward eventually telling the church to say, hey, this has been going on. Uh, I want you guys, as you have ability and opportunity, to, to approach this person and to um, plead with them, pray for them, uh, ask them to uh, turn from these things. And uh, after a time of that, which was, again, some time to allow it to take place, there still was no movement, no repentance. At that point, we had to say, okay, now we need to move toward that, that point of what's called excommunication, removing them from membership of the church. Yeah, and, and uh, there are all kinds of things that come to mind here. Oh, yeah. The amount of time yeah. that it takes to do this, that you, you, you are deliberate and slow and sure about it. The worst thing you want to do is discipline someone who doesn't deserve it. You yes. Know? Um, so – um, and then uh, and deal with the whatever the uh, array of factors might be that that could be in play. So it's a very very deliberative process. I think that's actually part of what the steps are in the Matthew passage is to kind of begin to make that point. Um, the the other thing that is that is um, hard here, and this is where contextualization makes some sense in a big city. Discipline, in some senses, is harder because because there's always another place to go. Yes, um, but in a small community where everybody knows everybody and there might not be many church choices in town, discipline becomes a bigger deal, and because because there may not be any other place to go, and uh, and then another thing that's behind this is I like to say. The quality of your community is tested by the way in which the ch- the challenge of the possibility of discipline is viewed. That if the community functions as a community where people care about the relationships that they have, mm-hmm. and the and this and the affirmation and the support they get from the community, then the idea of being rebuked by that community is something that gives someone pause. But yeah, yeah. if it but if it doesn't no, function that way, then the, if it doesn't function that way, then discipline may not matter because they don't because because the the community hasn't generated the respect in response to be able to make that have a have a pop to it. Yep, no, I, I agree. So that, it brings three things to mind real quick. Number yeah. one, uh, I think theologically, when Jesus says, "Let them be to you as a tax collector and a Gentile," if they're come to the point of removal right i want to say theologically to this person like they're 
there's not evidence, not not fruit being born that demonstrates what genuine Christianity looks like. So you, you'd say that. But for some, they would say, well, I don't care what you think. I'm fine the way I am, and I'll go to this church down the road. So point two, I would say be in communication with churches. If you, if you it's in the area, if they move out of the area, you can't be you know doing everything. But if you can, be communicating to say just especially so you know, if it's in a category like being a predator or something like that. Then yes. then, then it's absolutely important that there be cross communication. Yeah, so you got to communicate with the church to let them know this is what's going on. We dealt with this just so you know they they just come started attending there. And third, you're right, you are spot on, Daryl. Think. Uh, the idea of community, going back again to that that real the starting knowing, point, yep. seeing community, loving you. Now the loss is palpable. Now, now the 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 degree to which it's said to us takes greater weight upon us, as opposed to just I'm a consumer. I'm sort of back here doing my thing. Well, if you guys want, don't want me, I'll go down here to the street and uh, go to that church and consume there. It's a yeah. very different mentality. Yeah. So I mean, so there, there, there are lots of elements. I mean, if the church is going to be the church and function as the church and care for people as a church and wrap their arms around someone to help them and lift them up and support them, et cetera, be everything a church is supposed to be. Supposedly, the loss of that is a loss that is appreciated by the person who risks losing it. Yeah, agreed. I think if you're if you are in the life of the church, that is a great loss. Yeah. So, um, well, or our our time is rapidly slipped away from us here. Let me ask you one final question, and that's um, uh, a terrible question at the end because it's so open ended. What haven't we covered? <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh man, there's probably certain things. I just want people to be able to recognize that. Ecclesiology, doctrine of the church is really crucial. Membership and discipline connect to one another, and that God has made a church for you and I to be involved in uh, to such a degree that our lives are transformed by it. We couldn't imagine life without it, and just get a vision for the church, maybe like Bonhoeffer talked about, hmm. in life together, right? Thinking through, going beyond mere attendance, beyond mere singing and hearing the preaching, but to say, we will be in one another's lives, do this for one another, and love one another in these kinds of ways. And if we do that, they will know us by our love for one another, right? So now the world sees a church displaying amazing sacrificial love, and that can change a lot of things. Well, thanks, Jeremy, for doing this. We really appreciate you helping us with this. And we thank you for being a part of the table and hope you'll be again with us soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.